Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. For a while, so, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was, uh, it was funny. You know, we had uh, Bobby on the show. Um, from Bobby's perspective, the YouTube channel that you've been helping out with uh, or doing some segments with, and it was uh, cool to see your email come through and and want to come on and, and chat with chat with me and Sean. Yeah, I watched that one. That was a really good uh, podcast too. Yeah, that was that was when I first um, started watching you guys, and I've had it in my car since. I actually preferred to listen to you on the podcast rather than uh, watch you on YouTube. Yeah, driving. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah it's- it's actually kind of funny because I was actually looking at some, you know, we, we're, we've been doing the podcast for, I think we're coming up on a year and a half now. It's probably closer to a year and a quarter, but uh, um, just looking at the different like platforms you can kind of put this stuff out on. And it's funny, like people who kind of go to the audio version of stuff tend to like the longer discussion, like sometimes even an hour plus, and most of our shows go, go quite a at least up to an hour for the most part. And then YouTube, it seems like people really like kind of like short videos, like that five to 10 to maybe 15 minute range. So, so far we've just been putting the full episodes up there, but I think most people, when they go to YouTube, they're actually trying to watch the video and listen. So their attention span maybe isn't quite an hour and a half before they want to move on to a different topic or a different thing. So Hopefully we're entertaining enough for the YouTube folks out there. I'm sure we'll get some comments letting us know one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, and no, I prefer it for the podcast. It's good for driving. Like, yeah. Especially if you're doing long distance. Yeah, you put your podcast on and the time goes by. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, I started listening to podcasts a few years back when I kind of started getting into ultra marathon stuff. And I just looked at kind of my schedule one day just to kind of figure out like where I was spending a bunch of my time. And I realized how much time I was spending running training for these events. I was like, there's gotta be something else I can do while I'm out here running around <laughs> that, that I can justify spending this much time on this, this stuff. So I uh, started listening to podcasts while I would run. And I was like, this is a great way to kill two birds with one stone. I get the training in and I can kind of learn something or uh, focus in on something that is interesting. Yeah, I know I couldn't do anything running anything more than 10 minutes running and I'm in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you wonder how many people nowadays are just multitasking with podcasts in the background and doing one thing or the other. Yeah, heaps, I reckon. Yeah, that's what they're good for. Yeah. Cool. So, and you're you're based in in Melbourne, right? No, that's my time zone. I'm actually a place called Eden Hope, which is about 450k from Melbourne. Um, it's halfway between Adelaide and Melbourne, almost on the border. Um, okay. So if you look at an Australian map, there's the two cities, Adelaide and Melbourne, and uh, yeah, I'm halfway between them. Yeah. Okay, cool. And how did how did you get connected with Bobby? Oh well, I I was watching Casey uh, Vegetable Police. Um, okay. I was watching Camera Channel. I like cameras. I'm I'm a technician by trade, and um, 
yeah, I, I was watching Casey and they, they went through Bangkok Airport and he met up with Bobby and they were talking about eating meat and how it made him feel good, but they were had all these ethical issues around it. Mm-hmm. So I made a video saying, um, you know, you're killing more animals if you eat a vegetable, a plant-based diet anyway, because I grow crops and I grow meat. I know which ones kill the most animals. And um, yeah, I sent that to Casey and, and Bobby and Bobby watched it and got in touch with me straight away. And um, yeah, that's how I got in touch with Bobby. Yeah, it was... Yeah, that was that was the first video I think I saw with you was the one you did where you guys were going through kind of just some of the stats behind. I think it was, yeah, the stats behind how many animals. I mean, it's all kind of a, a guess when you're when you're turning up that, but you can kind of get like, well, we're killing at least this much, <laughs> and uh, it's a lot. <laughs> so that was interesting. And then I watched another one you guys did where you were talking about kind of like the the topic of well, this is what ruminants can eat and, and, and survive on. And I think there's a lot of confusion or at least, uh, you know, in some cases, potential confusion about like, you know, like why are we feeding cows this food so that we can eat them when we could just eat that food? And in reality, a lot of the stuff these these ruminants are eating are, are incredibly inappropriate for human digestion. It's not like we're giving them like the, the corn that you'd find at the grocery store, you know, they're getting like stuff that didn't pass quality standards. They're getting parts of the corn stock that we wouldn't need to begin with and things like that. Um, I thought that was really interesting and it was, uh, uh, it, it kind of, it came up in a couple of our podcasts. So, <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw Sean, um, Sean's all over it. Like his last, um, YouTube video that he put up on, uh, yeah, he's with, the. uh, the, the meat from factory farmed meat or not factory farm um the the lab grown meat like sean's all over this stuff too uh, mm-hmm. yeah, really on it now. yeah it, there's a few issues um like when i watched that joe saladin one you did because um, mm-hmm. so, i came to farming late i actually bought a farm when i was 30 um so we've been here for 17 years now 16 years and um yeah i watched his video um i've traveled all over australia because i was learning yeah, hun, we're not on yet. Yeah, my missus just leaving. Um, yeah, she, so yeah, I watched his video and I've traveled all over Australia. I've seen it work really successfully and I've seen it fail spectacularly. Like it, it does work and sometimes it fails quite badly. So yeah, it is. For like the multi-paddock um, holistic stuff, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, rotational grazing they call it or spell mm-hmm. grazing. Like there's a whole lot, of, um, whole lot of things around that. It can work really well and I've seen it work spectacularly well. But I've seen it fail spectacularly too, where it just doesn't work at all. Uh huh. Yeah, that's that's always kind of been the counter to it. You know, we've had uh, Frank Mitloner on from the uh, University of California Davis. He kind of does a lot of the greenhouse gas slash uh, ruminant agriculture type stuff. And then one of his uh, former students and now PhD, uh, Dr. Sarah Place, came on, and they're very much both kind of working within the kind of conventional approach. So they were they were kind of talking about, about a lot of that stuff. And, you know, it is interesting because like, I kind of feel bad for those folks because, you know, they were basically, I'm, I'm not sure how like things have kind of progressed or, or degressed, I guess, depending on how you look at it over in Australia, but here in the United States, the it sounded like kind of the animal agricultural side of things were given like kind of some quotas, like we need you to like improve and get this efficient by this timeline. And they were like hitting all their metrics and uh, they're still getting backlash. They're still getting like the whole, like, you know, you guys are the ones that are at fault here. We need to, you know, end all animal agriculture. And it seems like we get really, we're, we're really susceptible to kind of 
want to overcorrect, I guess maybe is the way to look at it where, um, I don't know, like, you, you know, then you get like the Joel Salatins, Alan Savory's on, we just interviewed, uh, um, Bobby or who's, who's, uh, Bobby Gills. And he's kind of with the Savory Institute. And I think we talked with him a little bit about like, well, what is the, where do we need to get to versus like getting a hundred percent? Like, I think it's a stretch probably to assume that we're going to switch every farm to a holistic managed farm. And uh, it sounds like you, you've seen some examples where maybe that would be impossible or not doable. And I can't remember what number he said would be ideal to kind of get to in terms of uh, creating, creating a big enough carbon sink to kind of offset a lot of, a lot of the problems. And um, it wasn't hundred percent. I remember that much. So it seems like there's a little bit of wiggle room there where we don't have to necessarily overhaul everything, but getting some of the places that would maybe benefit from it first would maybe be a good starting point and then kind of go from there. Uh, well, yeah. The problem with the holistic management is you need a lot more people on the ground. And the fact mm -hmm. is that farming's going the other way. So yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 We always try to seem to limit the workforce as opposed to like, you know, create it. It seems like, which is kind of funny because here in the U S where there's, well, you know, we're coming up on another presidential election and uh, one of the topics is just like this idea of like automating all these works and all these, these positions and like people are who would traditionally work. Those are going to be, have no options left to them or they're going to have to go into a field they have nothing, no interest in or no skills behind. And, and that's going to cause a huge problem. And, you know, you, you hear both sides of that. And there's some folks who believe like, ah, it'll self-correct and, you know, jobs will create themselves and other people don't, but it does seem like regardless of which position you fall or believe in it, there, there is a, a push to kind of minimize the amount of manpower required for any, any specific job. So yeah, well, that's holistic. where the cost is. Mm -hmm. That's where expenses are. I mean, I could, I could double the production of my place if I worked a lot harder. But then uh -huh. I need and then that would cancel out any, um, any extra money I made. So I'm better off not running it as hard and, uh, and not doing that rotational grazing just because the economics of it. Mm. As soon as you put an employee on, you've got to have all the work cover, all the holiday pay. There's a whole lot of stuff that piles up on top of their wage, which means that I would basically be putting the employee on and, and having to subsidize it from the money I'm making now. I wouldn't <laughs> make any. I'd make less money my pocket the place yeah like, yeah it's just not it's always interesting when you kind of you, you look at one thing through it through a lens and you're like oh this is this is the magic bullet right here and then all of a sudden like once you kind of put it into process or look at it deeper or look at it through a different lens you start to see some of the unforeseen consequences and some of the hurdles that are at in place with a lot of this stuff but sean, sean can you hear us I can hear you. Sorry, man. Zach, you told me to restart my computer, and that's never a good thing because uh, <laughs> well, you're coming through crystal clear now. So hopefully, well, well, you can hear me better. But I mean, it's like 20 minutes of freaking updates and antivirus updates and crap and crap. Uh, hey, Rob, welcome. Thanks for coming on, man. Sorry, we kind of we tried to get you on last week, and, and so you know we could just couldn't make it work. But uh, I saw you from. I guess when we had Bobby Risto on, I guess he kind of you guys had a little bit of collaborative stuff, and I kind of with interest saw some of your videos about you know, the real cost of farming, you know, when it comes to uh, sentience and life and stuff like that. And so I think that's interesting stuff. But I mean, it's nice to have people that are in the trenches, you know, because Zach and I and a lot of these people that aren't farmers or ranchers like to spe speculate and postulate and, 
put our two cents in, but it's always good to get the perspectives. Guys are actually in the field and, and know this stuff. So it's great to have you on. I know, I just, uh, I'm, I, I'm sure you're not from, maybe you're familiar with this guy. There's a guy named uh, Thomas Massa. He's a U.S. representative. And uh, I just saw somebody said he's, he's, he's in favor of something called the, uh, um, what is it called? The, is uh, it the Prime Act? The Prime Act. And so they're trying to uh, change the processing facility in the U.S. Because we've got the USDA, you know, it's this stuff from the uh, 1900s where Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle and how it was just a disaster, how they were processing meat and all the crap. And so the USDA, you know, the, you know we came into how we regulate this stuff. And now the regulations become so burdensome that the average farmer has a really hard time selling his produce directly to consumers, at least in the U.S. I don't know what the situation is like in your part of the world. Yes, I'm in Australia. It, is, yeah, it needs to be fixed. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's something. So, I'm, you know, hopefully he'll come on the show and talk about that. But, I mean, I think that's something that, you know, you're talking about. I kind of I caught the tail end of, you know, what what is preventing you from doing this or that, which may or may not make sense. And some of it's cost and it's economic realities. And, and the question becomes, can we change those realities for people through through legislation? And is there something that would – you know, incentivize people to do things and, or even doesn't make sense. And so I think that's part of it. But uh, um, I always like to give people the opportunity to kind of tell, tell them a little bit about just a little brief bit about the background. So we know who we're talking to. So if, if, if we, unless you guys already covered that, I don't know. I, again, I apologize. I came in late on this one, but if, if, you, if you haven't, let's, let's do that, Rob, if you don't mind. No, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, you guys are superstars. So uh, yeah, nice to meet you. Um, yeah. So my background, I, um, I, I left school, um, I was supposed to, I was in the stream that was supposed to go to university and I looked around and I saw the people that were making the most money were trade people. They weren't, they weren't people. My, my, my parents both had degrees. My, my dad was a senior lecturer at Rosewood Agricultural College and my mum had a degree in natural resource management. So they, they both had good jobs and good salaries. But yeah, I looked around at the, the kids that, that were leaving school and their parents and who was making the most money and I realised that having a trade was the way to go. Um, so I went down that path and... Uh, yeah, basically ended up with three trades and uh, retired when I was 30 with a stack of money in my pocket. So, yeah, I was very fortunate. You've got to be lucky to do that. But yeah, the internet was growing and I got involved in that. So building computer networks. And, yeah, I was fortunate enough to retire when I was 30 and took a couple of years off and then uh, looked around at what I was going to do because I didn't want to be fat and lazy and doing nothing and uh, decided to buy a, a, a property. And uh, with my old man's advice, we bought a grazing property with the ability to crop uh, in a place that's fairly wet. So um, yeah, it's usually green. It's important. Brown, brown places, no good. Do your money in. So yeah, you want you want somewhere where the high rainfall and stuff grows. So yeah, bought a property down uh, in southwest Victoria. So I'm one of these people that uh, that um, you've been talking about should get into agriculture when they're in their thirties, and that was that was definitely me. It's a hard thing to do. You have to come in with a heap of money. Agriculture, you don't make much money from agriculture. Money yeah, one of the one of the things, and again, this I, I, I suspect is probably similar in Australia, but I know right now, like the land that is often up for potentially it's good agricultural land is also prime uh, development, you know, commercial development, you know, residential development property. So the prices uh, tend to reflect what you could get from commercial development. The farmers have to pay the same price, and so it becomes very cost prohibitive to say, you know, I could grow food on this land, but you know. I can only make X amount of money from that food. Whereas, you know, some commercial developer can go in there and I can put a shopping mall there and make, you know, 20 times the profit. And so it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I've seen something in the U S where all this prime farming land is being taken up by residential housing developments and stuff like that. So there's, there's so many nuances to this stuff that, uh, you know, I think at some point we have to realize that, you know, we all got to eat at some point, whether it's plants, animals, 
or whatever. But I mean, we're, we're, we're seriously, uh, and I saw it a couple of times you talking about how stressed out the worldwide agriculture system is just supporting what we have now is, you know, whether we have the resource, the land, or just the people, you know, and I, I don't know where the, you know, where the sort of the, the, the weakest link is on that. And where, where, do you, where do you see the problems with food production? Uh, these, you know, because you know, we see this, obviously you're aware of this push that we're all going to eat soybeans and pea protein and we're going to give up, you know, animals because we're going to feed more people calories that way. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of, uh, sort of future potential? Yeah, we can't do it. Like, it's, like um, if, later on in the podcast, if I uh, start rub rubbishing croppers, um, everyone's got to remember that cropping is the base. Um, so that they, the cropping supplies about 60% of the global calories. Um, animals make up the other 40%. But you can't take one out of the system. Our food supply system is stretched to the limit. Well, we, the trouble with what the vegans are advocating for is that we eat plant-based and we get rid of animal agriculture and they protest at um, slaughterhouses and abattoirs and stuff. But, but in effect, all that's doing is we're shifting the importation of fruit and vegetable from third world countries. So we're taking away their food, which they can't afford to have lost and ship it, ship it to our first world country. So we don't notice that they're starving people, but that's the net effect because once you take away that agri animal agriculture, which is about 20% from livestock and about 20% from fishing, um, once you take that away out of the system, yeah, the, the calorie count just falls massively short. We need 23 trillion calories a day to global population. Like the, the numbers are huge. And if you don't have the animals converting waste product that we can't eat into calories that we can, um, it's about 2 billion people have to starve. No, that's just that is just the raw numbers and anyone can add this up and we don't have the cropping country left anyway there's just thought that all the good cropping country is being cropped and the grazing country is being grazed and there's there's places like mine where we can i can shift across to cropping but it's more much more marginal i get too wet so if i if i do crop this place um the crops are way more variable some years in fact, I rarely get a good crop. Most of the time I'm putting a crop in and I'm expecting it to go to livestock. Even though I want it to go for human consumption, um, it almost always goes to feed the livestock because it gets too wet and then um, the weeds get in it and I can't run the tractors over it. So, yeah, most of the most of the good cropping countries used for cropping. We can't switch. It, we've just got to produce as much food as we can and that involves livestock as well. Hey, Rob, let me, I mean, because I've seen, you know, some of the videos you've put out there, and I just want to kind of go over some of this stuff. Now, you know, I always hear, you know, one of the things is, you know, animals use up 80% of the available land, you know, either through feeding or through crops or range land, and that's FAO dead. And that's true. And we know that uh, when it comes to land usage, I mean, the range land is, you know, like 65, 70% of what's available. I mean, you just can't grow crops on those lands. You have to, I mean, either they're either not productive at all for food or uh, you stick animals on there, whether they're, uh, you know, ruminants, you know, sheep, cows, goats, whatever you graze them. Uh, I think the vegans are like, you know, we're going to let wild antelopes run through there or something like that. And they're going to manage themselves somehow. Um, so I've got the tractor guy right next to me. But I mean, I, what, when you when you talk about, you know, you feel bad because a lot of the food you attempt to raise for human consumption then goes to uh, livestock. Talk a little bit about that because you talked about what is actually produced worldwide from a crop standpoint? What goes to feed humans? What goes to, to animals? And what type of food goes to animals? Because I know you said that it can be the, the kind of the rubbish, you know, the stuff that we can't eat that turns out to be, we, we, we intend to grow it for humans, but it doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't make, you know, human quality standards. And then we end up giving the leftovers to animals. And what would, what would become of that stuff if we didn't feed it to the animals? Well, no, let's just 
I'm sure you can do it more eloquently than I can because you have more knowledge in this, but just give it, walk us through this scenario about what actual food production is when it comes to crops, what the animals get, what humans get, so on and so forth. Yeah, so the animals basically eat the waste. Um, or you can run the raw numbers because basically you've got 23 trillion calories. You can you can add up what we have to what how many how many calories the crops produce, and you can add up how many calories the the livestock produce, and then you end up with the number that's got to be around about 23 trillion calories a day. So you can figure out from those how much how what percentage of the crops go to livestock, what percentage of crops go straight to people, because the conversion ratio from livestock to uh, crops to livestock if you feed the crops and then fatten up an animal it's about five to one the conversion ratio so you lose you lose five calories and gain one so you can't feed like the vegans will say 80 percent of the crops are fed to animals but if you run that with 80 percent and then you do the conversion of five to one um, everything just falls in a big screaming heap we just don't have enough calories on the planet so the only way it works the only way it works is that most of the crops 55 percent of the crops get fed straight to people so that's that. That's when you grow a crop. That's your intention is for it to be human used for humans because that's who pays the most money. Um, you get your crops tested, and if it reaches a high enough standard, it's straight for human consumption. Um, in Australia last year, seventy percent of the crops that were planted went to feed livestock because they didn't yield. They were, there was frost. It was a drought. So if you added up the area, you'd say seventy percent of the crops went to feed livestock. That's one hundred percent true. But none of that crop could have been fed to people. It wasn't. We, we imported wheat in Australia last year, which is very rare for Australia. Usually we're a big, big wheat exporter, but because of the drought, um, those crops, 70% of those crops were fed to livestock. Now, if you didn't feed it to livestock, that's even less calories that, that enter the global food production system. I, I think Australia was still a net calorie exporter, but we did it with livestock. So the, the crops get fed the waste crops get fed to livestock. When 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 a crop gets through, it goes through a processing plant. So if corn cob turn, if corn kernels turn up, they get the corn kernels get rip, ripped off, and the cob gets fed. All the waste matter gets fed to ruminant animals in feedlots. I mean, they they basically don't eat what we eat. I've got a bet at the moment. Any vegan wants to take this, I'll send them ten kilos of feed from a livestock feeder in a paddock, and they can consume that on a live stream. Now the fact is they can't eat it. Like the stuff that comes out of a livestock feeder is basically got uh, fiber in it far too much fiber in it and that you'd have to break that down to get the nutrients from it like it is just waste product we can't eat what they eat and they, they consume what we can't eat and turn it into calories we can that's that's how the system works that's how it's always worked when you had small holdings people would run um crops and they'd have their, sh their cattle and their sheep and their and their, their pigs and their chickens and they would it would be all in that small farm now we've stretched it out where the where people are much more um focused on what they do so they'll grow a crop but that waste product still gets fed to livestock like they'll, they transfer it in trucks the waste product that in the past they would have had their cattle or sheep run out and feed off that that crop now they transfer that waste and send it to someone specializing in raising livestock so they just truck that and send it across to livestock feeders and that's how it works it's always been that way we just we just don't eat what the livestock eat and yeah we get first we get first pickings at the crop and the waste product gets sent to livestock now, now, in the U.S., I mean, I mean, when I, I know corn is is and, and soybeans are becoming fairly significant as well. But I mean, and it's, it tends to be the soy meal. You know, if they press it for the oil and, and they use the soybean oil for human consumption, and I'm sure there's some industrial uses for it. But you know, then they take the soy meal, the soy cakes, and and, and occasionally they feed whole soybeans. I think to animals, but I mean, it generally tends to be the leftovers. 
Um, but, you know, corn is, is a big one in the U.S., uh, you know, and in different parts of the world. I know barley is big in Canada, and they have different things they feed to different animals. But I know there is, you know, the, when we look at corn production, a lot of it goes into biofuel, you know, particularly ethanol production in the United States. There's a huge corn crop for that. But at the same time, much of the corn that's grown is specifically not human edible. I mean, we see that sweet corn is what humans eat, and they grow I don't know, 5%, 10% of the corn crop is, is, is directly grown for humans. The rest of that's either biofuel. And there is some of it that I, that I, if I'm not mistaken, is grown specifically because animals are going to eat that. But you're talking about humans will eat the, the kernels, you know, but we're not chewing on the stems. We're not chewing on the corn cobs like an animal would. And if, if that waste product was not fed to ruminants, I mean, I would assume it would go to some compost pile and then it would undergo bacterial fermentation. We would have methane being evolved from that, the same sort of uh, you know, meth uh, methanogenic uh, bacteria would, would feed on that, I would assume. And you would have methane emissions from standing heaps of, you know, you know grain leftovers, I, I would assume. Is that, am I incorrect in thinking that? No, that's what, I don't know what you do with all the waste. Like, it'd be, it'd be a huge amount of waste you'd have left over. You know, I'm not sure what you would do with it if you didn't feed it to ruminant animals. Um, yeah, I guess you, I guess you'd turn into compost, compost, but you'd, the piles would be enormous, and they'd take years to break down. Um, the U.S. is a the U.S. is a very different situation to the rest of the planet, and you're only you're less than five percent of the population. So, it, for most of the data, you sort of have to exclude the U.S. because you get you get grain subsidies. So everyone's subsidised to grow grain. So you they'll grow you grow a lot of corn that does get fed to livestock in the U.S. because of the subsidies. Corn isn't such a good animal feed because you grow quite a lot of plant matter and then you take the corn kernels off. You, you don't really have a lot of... Once a plant puts all its energy into the seed head right at the end. So if you if, um, uh, harvest a wheat crop, once you, re, once you harvest a wheat crop and you're taking off all the seeds, the seed heads, the, the livestock can't actually eat what's left over. It's like grass. It's because the plants put all its energy into the last burst of thing. It, last last thing the plant does is put all its energy into the seed head. So all the nutrients have gone into those into those um, the, the um, grain heads, and you've basically got well, it's paper. There's no there's no nutrients left in the in the in the in the um, the trash that's left over. So livestock, you will put you will see livestock run in on a. a an oat crop or a barley crop after it's been harvested because the harvester leaves 10% behind. So they can use livestock to um, eat that, eat the leftovers. But after that, they can't eat the stems and that. There's just no, there's no nutrients left in it for them. And the same, the same is true with corn. So if you grow these plants, if you really want to grow something that the animal can eat the whole lot of, so sorghum, for example, is what you would grow for animal feed generally, because then the, the animal can eat the whole lot. And the other thing about grass, grass is a lot more efficient. It's about two times more efficient at converting sunlight into um, vegetable matter. There's something about grasses that make them much more efficient. So in general, you're much better off with something like sorghum or grasses to get that to grow and get the livestock to eat that. You won't, the only reason you would grow grains and cereals for livestock is because it's being subsidized or you're expecting it to go to people and it falls short and then you feed it to livestock. That's the only two reasons. And so the US is very different with the corn, the way they use corn, because you're getting subsidized to grow it. So the numbers work that way and you wouldn't do it normally. Like it's, it's an unusual system and it's because of subsidies that cause that. Do we see farmers who have cattle follow like the plows after they've, you know, harvested the corn just to pick up that 10% or is that just not efficient enough to even bother with? 
yeah, we don't grow corn here, so I'm not a specialist about corn. Um, we, certainly in Australia, but it's becoming less because there's a no-till farming, which is kicking in in the last 10 years, so or minimum till. So you have tractors that run on the same um, laneways. Everything you do, you drive the tractor on the same place because you get compression on the ground. So with GPS guiding, you can run the tractors within two centimetres. So what they do is all the equipment's the same width and you drive in the same laneways with the tractors all the time. So they're always running on the same... Um, stretch of dirt so that's the only bit of compression and they don't want the livestock going in and compressing the dirt afterwards so it's becoming less common to see livestock running behind the harvesters yeah it it still happens a bit but it's less and less common yeah because of that reason yeah ground compression and, and not wait minimum till means you don't want livestock there you want to keep the ground fluffy and soft and that's what that's the reason they do that yeah, minimum till is really good at keeping the ground, uh, protecting the topsoil, but it has some ramifications in that you will use a stack more chemical. The amount of chemical you use, because everything you do now, you, in the past, you'd rip the ground up to do a weed kill. So you'd, you'd till the ground and roll it over with offset discs, and that would give you a weed kill. Um, they don't do that anymore now. It's all with sprays. And I think that's the knock-on effect is, you know, insects have been killed and the bees, the bee population in the last 10 years is on a serious decline. The last 10 years, minimum till is becoming really popular. So I think there's a correlation there. Yeah, one of the, I mean, I think one of the interesting things in the U.S., I don't know if it's the same in Australia, you know, because all of our grain is kind of produced in kind of one part of the country for the most part, you know, kind of this central plains, you know, Kansas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with U.S. geography, but it's kind of there. And then so the animals are then transported there, you know, the ones that go on grain to finish out. So we have I don't know that we have you probably don't have that same situation in you in Australia where you transport the animals to the food. You seems like you bring do you bring the food to the animals. Is that how that works there? Yeah, most of our animals are grass-fed in Australia because yeah. the, you, you have to have the subs, the grain subsidies. The only way it works in the US is you've got huge grain subsidies, so the grain's cheap enough to feed to livestock. The economics work. But in Australia, only I think it's only 2% of our cattle are in feedlots at any one time. So most of our, most of our livestock are grass-finished. doesn't mean we don't roll um, grain out into the paddocks to feed them, but actual feedlots, there's very few animals in. What? What's the size of the Australian herd? You got, what is it, like 20 million or something like that? Do you have an idea? I think we're a bit higher than that. I, I know the sheep one, 65 million. I don't know off the top of my head what the cattle is. Yeah, oh, I, nice. I export sheep, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not huge. Um, although we export a lot of meat because our populations, you know, we're only 25 million population. So we, we are a big food exporter. We don't actually produce that much though. England produces more grain than we do which is interesting when you look at the area. But, um, yeah, just we, we export a lot of wheat generally when we're not having a drought because our population's low. But, yeah. And you guys have had a lot of drought recently. Or, no, you had a lot of flooding, I guess. Wasn't that the problem or was it drought? In, no, it was drought in you guys. Sorry, it was flooding in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we're having some floods at the moment. But, yeah, no, we, we had drought last year, serious drought last year that knocked us around. Yeah. Let me, let me, cause you know, and uh, just cause you, you probably wonder, I don't know the people that are, that are not, that are not watching this. You see, I've got a picture of a bunch of dead rabbits here and I just kind of pull that up there because I know you talk about culling of, of pest animals in, in, uh, and I know you talk about mice and other things. And that's something that we have this misconception, you know, particularly when people come here from the plant-based movement and they're doing it for ethics because they believe they're, you know, they're not killing any animals. Uh, and, and the ones that they do kill are completely unintentional. And I, and I, I just say, what's the definition of a pesticide? I mean, that, that, that implies intent to me. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, different techniques for growing food, whether it's plant or animals, and it, what, what, is the, what is the cost of life, you know, 
uh, for that and how much of it is intentional, how much is unintentional. So we have a better, you know, a better sense of what's really going on. Well, it's a hundred percent intentional. You know, I know when I put a crop in how many animals I'm going to kill, you know, it's just you, everything. When you start off and you look at a paddock that, that has um, been grazed with animals, there's a whole lot of life underneath that. I mean, you, earlier you said 80% of the land is, is used for animal grazing and that's a hundred percent true because, um, the way animals graze is that they fit into the ecosystem. We sure we displaced the local big herbivores like kangaroos and wallabies and that got displaced with cows and sheep, but that's all we did. We just displaced the native ones and, and introduced our own. The underlying ecosystem is still there. So there's all these animals that are existing underneath the big herbivores. And then when you crop them, you have to kill them. Like you have to, you convert a complex ecosystem into a monoculture. And that's why the 80% number, sure, we use heaps more area, but we're just doing what a natural system always does. We've just displaced the big herbivores. So um, claiming that area has anything to do with it is is a bit misleading because when you put a crop in, you're using 100% of the resources of that paddock. You're taking your resources away from everything else that exists there and you're, and you're focusing it in just on the grains that you're going to grow. Um, so you strip everything away. Anything that's living there gets killed. And I know before I'm, I start cropping that that's going to be the end result. Like I just know that that's what I'm going to do. It's not, it's not, there's nothing unintentional about it. When you go cropping, you, you, you know you're going to kill a heap of animals. You know? And when you spray, when I bait, you know, I'm not putting the bait out for fun. I'm putting the bait out to kill the mice that are in the, in the, in the paddock eating my grains. I mean, that's just what I'm doing. But the baiting has a lot of knock-on effects because the predators see a, m- a mouse in the paddock and it's easy pickings because it's sick and can't move. Predator comes and eats that mice and then you've killed that predator too. So your knock-on effect from baiting is, is just, it's, it is horrific. Like it's, there's nothing, but you have to do it. We have, the croppers have to grow crops because otherwise the planet starves. I mean, they're the base of the pyramid. When I grow a crop, I know what's going to happen. And it's just, it is what it is. I wish, I wish we could do it differently, but it, the fact of the matter is we kill far more sentient animals in way worse ways. Dying from being baited, like there's two or three days of dying there, um, getting crushed up by the machine. And even even the animals that survive all that, they say, oh, the animals will run away from the header. Sure they do, but you've ripped away all the food source. I mean, there's a, that, the food that's left behind, the grains that are left behind, they've got a few bits of grain to eat. And once that's gone, there's nothing left. They can't eat the stems. There's no, there's no nutrients left. They starve to death. So you get them either way. You get them, you get them, you kill a heap of animals and in horrific ways when you crop. And it's, it's just the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, and I, that, I would assume that that's not just grain. I mean, that, that would be vegetables, strawberries, tomatoes. I mean, anything, anything that's grown, you know, whether it's fed to an animal or not, is going to have that same effect. I mean, I think that's, I think it's very naive to think that you can eat any, any, well, you can even exist as a human and not cause tremendous amounts of, uh, you know, animal death i mean that's you know this is a circle of life go watch the lion king kids and (laughs) well it's worse with 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 vegetable you've still anytime you do a monocrop you're killing a heap of animals but vegetables often need um irrigation so then you've got your whole irrigation system so you've got all the fossil fuels that you need you run the pumps and and pumping water is expensive thing to do so and then you're taking water from aquifers or water from rivers so yeah the knock-on effect from any any vegetable production system is I mean, the, the vegans carry on about this vertical farming thing. And you look at what you have to do. You have to have a humidically sealed area with grow lights and, and then they have the water that, 
world of hydroponic, which is water with all the nutrients in it that's been mined from soil anyway. It's all, it's, you, you kill a stack of animals mining that soil to put in the hydroponic system, then you use it burning a heap of energy plus the building. Like there's just, you just can't get away from it. The, the most ethical eating you can do is a large herbivore such as a cow that's grass fed and finished. Something that's eating in a natural system. You, you just can't do any better than that. You kill one animal, you get over a million calories. So you can feed yourself for a year. You don't, you don't really want to refrigerate it though. What you want is 350 people um, to be eating one cow per day. And that, if you don't refrigerate, because as soon as you put in, introduce refrigeration systems and trucking, you, you straight away you're killing more animals anyway. So the most ethical eating is local grass-fed herbivores killed and everyone eats it on that day. No one does it like that. But if, you, if, you, if vegans truly wanted to be the most ethical, that's what they would do. Yeah, it's interesting when you get down to kind of the core of that, where you just kind of keep peel, peeling back the layers and you start to realize what kind of has to die in order for one thing to live. And um, I mean, if you're open-minded enough to keep peeling that back, you're eventually going to get to the point that for you to live, something's going to die. Something sentient is going to die. Um, I guess maybe if you're a fruitarian, I, could you maybe get around it that way? I don't know. But then, you, then you're killing yourself. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, you're killing yourself. So something's dying sooner than it would have otherwise regardless. And uh, I'm not sure, like, how to really kind of get that message out in a efficient way because it seems like you almost have to go back and forth a dozen times in order to get to that point where someone realizes, if they even decide to realize that, you know, a sentient being is going to die for them to live. And it, it becomes kind of interesting and almost uh, a bit a bit defeating at times, I suppose. Yeah, fruit's terrible, like for animals. Fruit, the, the amount of sprays you have to use for fruit production. And you can't live somewhere there where the fruit grows all year round, so you have to ship it anyway. The fruitarians do not have the moral high ground. There's no, you could possibly, as an individual, if you lived on the coast and you ate um, uh, shellfish, um, so cockles and oysters and that you that would be for, as far as sentence is concerned you could do better than anyone else but that you just we can't grow enough of them to feed very many people anyway so that i mean that's for feeding a large number of people grass-fed herbivores but yeah fruitarians i mean most of the time you have to ship the fruit from another country and mm -hmm. straight away you're introducing the fossil fuel issue and then you killed lots more animals you might as well eat a large grass-fed herbivore yeah fr the fruit the amount of chemicals used in fruit production yeah, and, and, and they're monocultures anyway, if you want to do it in a commercial sense. Sure, if you run around in the forest and just pick berries and find the odd dead animal, you're going to do way less impact than anyone else. But that you can't feed 7.7 million people like that. I mean, that's just a non-starter. In, in commercial food production, yeah, the fruit kills a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. Well, it does kill a lot of people, but it kills a lot of animals. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, did, I had actually was talking to a fruitarian a while ago about that, and uh, they were... They were just talking about the amount of, re yeah, it goes back to what you were saying before with refrigeration. If you're going to live a fruitarian lifestyle outside of maybe like a place like Hawaii where there's fruit falling off trees left and right, you're going to have to have massive refrigeration just to kind of keep that stuff in in quantities that is uh, usable for yourself. And, and then you're, you know, you're just indirectly causing, causing problems. So it's uh, interesting. <laughs> The trouble, with fruit, the trouble with fruit in a natural system is that other animals will eat it long before we do. Mm. So in Hawaii, for example, the, the birds and the bats and stuff will eat the fruit before it's ripe enough for us to eat. So the only way you can eat that fruit is to go and pick it early and then put it on and protect it with nets and, 
and put it into sheds. And then straight away, you've killed animals because of that. You know, you've built this structure that required energy and input and trees to be cut down and plastics and tin. So there's just no way around it. Like you, as soon as you get away from that natural system, you're going to be killing a lot more animals than just eating a large herbivore. You just, there's, I mean, I wish, I wish it was Disneyland. I wish we could skip through the forest and feed Bambi carrots and have the fox running alongside us. But that's just, it's not the reality. And, and it's, it's way more complex. It's that Dunn and Kruger graph where, you know, people who don't know anything um, think they know more than anyone else and you get to the backside and, and that, this is where you guys are operating now where it, it's way more complicated it's not it's, there's not a simple solution and the number of animals you kill and the sentience and the sentient animals you kill it's everything's more complicated than that it's not there's no simple solution now for a word from our sponsors all right folks this episode of the human performance outliers podcast is brought to you by butcher box ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. You know, the interesting thing, like just after this last like five to 10 minutes of conversation that that I thought of is like, when you really get down to the bottom of it, like the person who shoots a deer in their own back. Hey, Zach just dropped out. Can you still hear me, Sean? Yeah, I can hear you. Let me, let me, hopefully Zach's a recording here. We lost you, Zach, but if you can hear us. Yeah, so oh, sorry. I, wanted, I wanted to, okay, Zach, you're back. You dropped out for a second. Oh, sorry about that. I'm not sure. Go back to your question. Yeah, I was just saying, like, I think it's interesting because, and when we talk about like if we wanted to even go down the whole like this person's more moral than that person based on their food choice which i think is kind of a losing battle to begin with in a lot of for a lot of reasons but at the end of the day when you kind of get down to the base of it you know you have if you had a person who would say you know harvest a deer out of their backyard just you know shoot it use an arrow what bow and arrow whatever and then share that meat with their neighbors that person probably gets the most public backlash but it's probably probably the best <laughs> yeah we just lost that again um yeah it's it's a bit tricky it because shooting shooting animals you, the gut the bullet can you still hear me sean are we still up yeah i can hear it yeah go go ahead and go ahead yeah you can talk to zach's killing the animal deer in your backyard scenario yeah the deer in your backyard um i do a fair bit of hunting because we've got um foxes and rabbits that we need to dispatch and hunting i think is the most um, ethical way of getting rid of them um i don't i just hate baiting like i'll do it in a i'll do it in my grain crop because there's no other solution you can't go out and shoot mice but um just for for larger animals hunting is the best but even being a good shot the bullets don't necessarily go straight when they come out of the gun so animals don't necessarily die quickly when you hunt you're much better off having an animal that's had a bolt gun to the head i mean they get they get hit with a stunner and then a bolt gun gets put on their head and it's lights out. And that's, that's the most ethical way you can get rid of an animal, which is in a slaughterhouse or an abattoir or do it 
do it here with a bolt gun. Um, that, yeah, there's no, there's no a lot of a lot of animals that are being hunted don't get the bullet in the head um, just because it's hard to do that shot. So they'll get hit in the chest, and they and it's not necessarily the fastest way for them to go. The other thing about livestock is they actually want to be around us. I was involved in a study last year where. Um, half the animals when they were when they were weaned, so the, the the small cows were taken away from their mums. So when you get, come to weaning time, half those were just put in a paddock and left alone, and the other half were worked with working dogs and people. So they, basically, the dogs bring the cattle to you, and the cattle perceive us as shepherds. So what we do with the dogs is the dogs will act to herd their livestock and bring them, and the livestock perceive us as the protectors. So the live the dogs will bring the, the cattle to us, and the cattle get to know us and and we act as the as the shepherds and keep the dogs away from the cattle. So we did that. And, and when we finished that process, after six months, they weighed the cows. The cows that were left in the paddock on their own were 20 kilos lighter than the ones that we worked with the dogs. So livestock actually want to be around us. And it makes sense because for 10,000 years, that's been the situation. The dogs have been protecting the cattle along with us. And that once, once you get livestock in that frame of mind, they do a lot better. They want to be protected. And they actually want to be around us. So leaving them to, and they, and they do better for it. I mean, most wild herbivores, half of wild herbivores die. I only lose 10% of my lambs. I mean, it's a good deal for livestock to be with us and be shepherded by us. We protect them, we keep them healthy. And they, at the end of the life, they get dispatched quickly. Most wild animals get two weeks to stand up and then spend the next three days getting eaten alive by insects. I mean, that's the death for a wild animal. If you, if you had to choose between being a domesticated animal and being a, a wild animal, you'd take the domesticated one every single time yeah i saw a study on white-tailed deer in the united states looking at you know it was something like about 50 percent of them are dead by 12 weeks i mean they never make it past weaning because they they, they just get eaten you know they're they just they get culled by the predators and then so it's it's again the wild ruminant population is i mean their death is they don't have a very good life and they, they definitely do better domesticated there's i, I think that's pretty clear uh that uh that we do that. Let me ask you, I mean, we see a lot of headlines from Australia with sort of vegan protesters, vegans kind of sort of bursting on a farmer's property, you know, you know, ripping open their doors, pulling their animals out, you know, coming in in mass, massive amounts doing the protests. I don't know if it's just extra media. I mean, is that something that you guys, is that something that's really happening or is it just the media blowing out of proportion? And, and I know there's been at least I think your, your, your prime minister, I guess, is that who you, you guys have a prime minister or president? I can't remember. Prime minister has been kind of pushing back and they're, they're trying to crack down on some of that with some stiffer penalties against it. So what's the actual on the ground reality? Is it all hype and nothing going on or is there something to that? Well, I haven't seen it for a, a few, a few months, but yeah, no, they shut down. There was a, um, a duck, duck factory called Lover Duck. That, that closed its door because they're invaded by vegans. Like it just, it was just going to be cost them too much money to put extra security on. So they just decided economically, they just close the door. So yeah, they've had an impact there. So they've shut down the a duck, a duck factory. Um, yeah, this definitely happening. And it's got people quite a lot of worry. And the other thing it's it's changed the nature of when you drive through Australia, now you see a lot of nasty signs on gates saying, you know, no trespassing, no entry. The gates are all shut and locked. You know, it's changed the, it's changed the openness of what, you know, you used to drive through Australia, you could wander up to a house and knock on a farm door and say, you know, I've broken down, can you come? Now people will view you with suspicion. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's been terrible what they've done. I, I'm really angry with what they've done. And, and, and the net effect is that if they shut down food production, um, meat-based production from herbivores, they're going to kill heaps of people. They just don't know what they're doing. They're messing with a the system that they've got no idea what the consequences of their action. 
you know, they're, they're taking food from third world countries to feed themselves if we shut down um, farming animals. It's, it's, you just can't do it. It's, they won't notice because they'll still be able to afford the food, but they won't have to look people in the eyes who are starving the actions they've taken it's, it's it, I, I don't know what the answer is just just get some education around food production yeah i mean i think that's in a, and I, as i learn i learn continuously i mean i have got you know i'm not a farmer or rancher i'm you know a physician has no no real background in this and i've, I've kind of gradually got to know more and more ranchers and been to ranches and talked with a lot of them and kind of figuring out we've had a number on the show, including, you know, like people like yourself. So we learn continuously on this stuff. And, you know, I mean, the, the sort of the vegan counter argument is, well, you can just feed the grain that you would feed the cows to the people and uh, that's going to make everybody happy. And, and you say that is not, that's not yeah. a workable solution. You can't do it because we're, we're already eating most of the grain anyway. They're so, and they get the waste product, even soy, the, the soy meal, we can't eat soy meal. That's just the waste product after they've taken the stuff off that people can eat. I mean, the tofu and your, and your soy milk, you know, that gets processed. They end up with some soy meal. That gets fed to the livestock, sure, but we can't eat it. So what else are you going to do with that soy meal? So that gets that gets turned into extra calories that we can eat. So, yeah, it's just we've just got to pay attention to what – we have to pay attention to where our calories are coming from and why why those calories exist in the first place. If they're eating the waste product and converting it into calories we can eat, we can't take it out of the system. If, if they were eating most of the, the – um, crops then sure but that's not what happens they're eating the waste product that we can't eat and converting it into calories we can it's as simple as that and there's no there's no way around it that it, it is what it is so we've just got to eat yeah be relaxed about what you're eating um you had joe salad on i've traveled all over australia because when i when i bought this place i was like i don't know what i'm doing i'm going to um have to find out so i was like fortunate enough to meet up with a guy who does livestock um teach, teaches people how to manage livestock the art of Art of herding livestock's been lost um, because everyone does it with motorbikes and helicopters and jeeps. And you know, we can muster animals. We don't need to be calm with them anymore. In the past, when you did it with a horse, you had to you had to muster livestock quite calmly. But now we just brumby. They call it brumby running. You get behind them and you chase them into the yards. Um, it's hard for the livestock, but they lose condition and they get stressed. And it's yeah, it's just not a good way to operate. Um, so this guy goes around and teaches people how to manage their livestock. So I've been all over Australia watching. Um, different operations and I've seen that Joel salad and um, rotational grazing thing work really well and I've seen it fail spectacularly for various reasons um, if you want if you want to talk about that we can yeah Rob if you could share with us some situations in which you've seen it fail and maybe say why if you know it failed that would be I think interesting for our listeners to hear okay so people like Joel salad and because they've been in the industry for their entire lives they don't know how bad you can get livestock so when you split your property up for his rotational grazing thing, you basically want your livestock to graze one patch of dirt once in the year. So the ideal situation would be you'd have 365 um, paddocks and you'd rotate your um, you'd rotate your livestock around there. So they'd only hit that spot once a year and flatten the and eat that grass and then move on to the next one. Now what happens is the livestock can get more and more pushy. Um, so as you open the gate, they'll run into the next paddock and they'll just flatten the feed looking for that one bit of plant they want. So the livestock get more and more pushy and they get harder and harder and, and you open the gate and you've just got this livestock that's bulged through the gate and flatten all the feed and then they look around and go, well, we've flattened all the feed now, we can't eat any of this. Um, and, and you end up, each time you move them, they get worse and worse and worse. So 
Um, if you haven't got your livestock under control, and this is basic livestock handling, if you the, the the way it's really successful is if you open the gate and you have a row of dogs. If you don't want, or you can do it with people on motorbikes, but if you want to do it on your own, you have a team of dogs that are sitting out in the paddock that pull the livestock up and say. I'm in charge. You can eat when I say you can eat and you're not running and doing cutting laps on this paddock because as soon as they start cutting laps on the paddock, they destroy all the feed that you tried to look after um, and, and you end up with livestock that are bulging running bastards and they and they flatten all the feed and they lose their condition because they're running around um, looking for that one bit, of gra- one bit of grass that they want to eat rather than just put your heads down and eat in a sensible fashion. So yeah, you can you can do it with dogs, or you can do it with people on bikes, or it's just basic livestock management, which Joel Salomon clearly is on top of. And but he but he probably doesn't know he's doing it. Like you have to be you have to be someone like me who had no idea moving in and try to manage livestock and go, well, I don't know anything. I've never learned how to do this, and then see how hard it is unless you've started off and been taught the right way right from the get go, which is probably Joel Salomon's position. Like he's uh, he's it doesn't even occur to him that's an issue. Um, whereas it's for someone like me who's new and see how bad you can have livestock and how good you can have them. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a livestock handling issue. Um, but the other problem you can have with this rotational grazing is if you have native animals that come and eat the feed, if, they come, if they're coming onto your paddocks and eating your feed, you might as well not be doing the rotational grazing because you're losing all the nutrients to these um, wild animals that are coming in and destroying the system you're trying to set up. So you might as well knock the fences over and let your herbivores compete with the wild animals and then they can get the best nutrients at that particular time so you, there's two situations where it doesn't work it, it doesn't work if you've if your livestock are, aren't right in the head and they're flattening all the feed or if you've got wild animals that are coming in and eating your grasses um, when you don't want them eating you might as well not have that rotational grazing and just go back to set stocking um, so they're the two situations where it, it just doesn't work so you might as well go back to doing what you were doing yeah, it seems like uh, there's a, there's obviously a late learning curve on that. And again, I'm I'm speaking with with absolutely no experience on this stuff. But I mean, it, it you know I, I think that uh, I don't. I mean, you know, obviously the, the cows you're going to have for you know cattle you're going to have a two maybe 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 closer to three years. You know, depending if you're grass finishing. You know, it's I think it's somewhere in that that time frame depending on how mature you want your cows to be. I know there's some. There's some sort of interest in old cows now. I know there's people that are that are slaughtering at seven, eight, nine years now. And that's that's there's a little niche market for that. But in all practicality, I think most of us are going to see cattle grain fed 16, 18 months, grass fed 24, 30 months, something like that, um, being being the, the time period. And so, is there a chance to like, how do you train these? You know, assuming you know what you're doing, how long does it take to to, to sort of get these animals? In the in the right frame of mind, I, su- I suppose, to where you can you can manage them better, where you can say, okay, look, you're going to eat all the grass. You're not just going to eat that one little piece of, you know, whatever clover that you like, and, and you're going to eat because you, that's the point of the rotational grazing is they they eat everything equally, and they don't you know they don't just pick and choose like they would in a big open field where they can just select their favorite foods. Yeah, like, well, livestock handling is like I've got a real passion for it now because I can see the benefits. Um, but it, it takes years to learn to do it, but it doesn't take two hours. If you've got a team of dogs, you can, you can break with, there's video footage of uh, up north. I think if someone Googled Neil McDonald and uh, clean skin cattle or clean skin bulls or scrub bulls, they'll, they'll see some footage of dogs working. Um, now clean skin cattle are cattle with no brands on them. So they've never been handled by people. They've, we've, they've just gone out and mustered them from Arnhem land that these cattle are running wild and they've brought them back into the yards. Um, you can do it in two hours. You can, we had, we had um, some video of some, um, clean skin bulls, so they've got the big horns. Um, 
walking around in the yards with these bulls after two hours of working with the dogs and on foot. Um, you, you can't, dogs do it faster than anything else, but you know, probably four hours if you wanted to do it on foot or with motorbikes, if you know what you're doing. But it, it, the learning curve, like I've, I've um, won an Australian radio controlled aerobatics title. I've, I was probably the youngest person in Australia to fly 500K in a sailplane. I was 15 and a half. Um, I've played in rock bands. Learning to train livestock and working dogs has been the hardest thing I've done in my life. You know, I, I'm a bit bumbly at it, and I've, in the last few years, I can tick the box and say I'm probably an A grader now, but it's taken me years to reach the standard that I want to be at um, for livestock handling. Like it, it, yeah, it's just been the hardest thing I've learned to do. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I take my dogs for a walk, and I'm off leash. There's a trail behind my house, and I got a little stick, and I'm like a shepherd, and I just kind of like <laughs> try to direct them. I touch them on the butt or the side of the neck to turn them. It, it you know, it's trying to get. I, I'm trying to imagine I'm some kind of shepherd, but I can't imagine with you know 100 head of cattle or, you know, trying to figure out how to get all these big monstrous animals that weigh five times what you do, to, to do it, uh, do what you want them to do. It's got to take a tremendous amount of skill and. Uh, intelligence to do that so it's, it's a, i think there's a lot of respect that, that people don't understand how hard that is and that's the thing that people you know uh, you know you see people that start this stuff off as kids you know we've got these things like the ffa with future farmers of america and you know all these different clubs where kids to start learning this as, as, at an early age and it's it really is a skill that's being lost i mean it's an art it, i mean it really is a skill and an art that's being lost um what do you think about um well I, I, I put up a video on YouTube, I think you might have commented on, on this sort of push for lab-grown meat. Do you have any reservations about that sort of uh, scenario? I know I painted out my my thoughts on that, but do you have any other insight or, or just want to discuss your insight on that if you have any? No, you, you were all over it. I mean, I'd, I'd shot a video a few days before you put your video up, and I, I pretty much said the same thing, Ollie. You said it way better. I mean, you can't... The amount of energy, the amount of inputs you have to put in. A factory, people just think a factory stuff comes out of it, but you have to have a look at the back end and see what goes in. And that's the problem with lab-grown meat. You've got this huge amount of energy. You've got to, you've got to have a humetically sealed um, lab. I mean, it has to be sterile because it, it, they, these things haven't got any you know, protection from micro. Um, well, you can answer it. You're the doctor. But, yeah, you've got to put it in a vat of antibiotics. You've got a cancer cell that can't protect itself. You have to protect it with antibiotics and you have to, you have to provide the energy that it grows with. Whereas opposed to a herbivore just goes out and eats grass in a natural system and solar powered. The sun shines, the grass grows and the cow eats the grass. I mean, you can't get away from anything less simple um, than that. Um, in the lab grown meat is just extreme opposite ends. There's no way it's ever going to be competitive with, uh, with grazing herbivores. It just, there's just no way. Just as soon as you add up the inputs, yeah, it's just, and then where do you get the inputs from? You're going to get them from. You can't get the calories from from cropping because we can't grow enough crops to feed the planet anyway. It's just there's no way any of the numbers work ever. You can't you can't substitute lab grown meat for these herbivores. No, I just can't see how you can possibly do it. That doesn't mean they're not going to try and market the hell out of it though. That's a <laughs> that's a sad thing. We see that, and I like I said, I, I shudder the fact that these people. Are, are you know so many people are buying into this this sort of beyond meat chemical slop garbage plant you know soybean canola oil mixture and they're buying off on that as it being healthy and, and i just i think when the lab grown stuff comes out it's going to be even bigger bigger media hype and uh hopefully there'll be enough people that sort of get educated and sort of learn on this stuff um 
Let me ask you, this is, a, this is another thing because we, and I get a little bit of pushback and I, and I don't mean to alienate farmers that grow crops. I mean, obviously I eat mostly, well, I would say mostly I eat pretty much animal food. And so that's my current bias, but I've got kids that eat fruit sometimes and they eat, you know, they eat some other foods and I'm not uh, anti all food, you know, but I mean, I just think you just have to realize what, what affects you and what doesn't and, and be sort of objective about it. But, you know, there's, there's this thing about, you know, we've got this monocropping problem where the soils are being degraded. The FAO says 60 more harvests are left. Um, we need to do something to regenerate the soil, you know, and then I have farmers saying that, no, we can, we can still grow crops in a, in a way where we're not damaging the soil and we can rotate them. And I don't know the answer to that, but I mean, I want you to touch, if you can, if you can touch on that, is there a way to responsibly grow fruits and vegetables and grains for those that are going to continue to eat them because people are still going to continue to eat them. The whole world's not going to go do what I do. I mean, I know that's not the case. So what do we need to do? I mean, is there a fix for this system that you, you know, if you could magically change all the laws to make it the perfect food system, plants and animals, what would, what would you say would have to happen? Yeah, no, we can't. Well, like we've got that, uh, we've got that 23 million calories a day problem, 23 trillion calories a day. Sorry. We've, and basically monoculture production and look these guys are feeding the planet so we can't give them a hard time you just got to every time i drive across go past a crop that looks spectacular i'm like that guy's awesome um they are they are basically feeding the planet they, the croppers are doing the heavy lifting for feeding the planet so you just got to have respect for that at the same time you know that the 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 the, 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 the step forward in cropping has been this minimum till um, but the minimum till means way more chemicals are being used. Um, it's looking after the soil at the expense of more chemicals being used and washed off into the rivers and streams and then out to the ocean and causes the dead zones. So, um, the cropping is not environmentally friendly um, in any way, shape or form. It's just, it's just not it. Um, but we can't, we can't not do it. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to say, you know, 60% of the population has to leave the planet. That's, I mean, that's the answer that we've locked ourselves in. We've got 7.7 .7 billion people. We're on track to go to 11 billion. I, I just, it is what it is. We've just got to, um, we've just got to stay out of the way. We need some rules around destroying the environment. Sure. But, but the people in the industry, the ag scientists and the, and the people on the ground doing the work, the farmers, you know, just let them do their thing. Otherwise, you know, people are going to starve. Yeah, we're already seeing, if anyone Googles global food crisis, you can see global food production is only increasing about 2% a year. The global, the global population is increasing faster than that. There's going to be a crossover point fairly soon. And it's going to occur because there's floods in the US, droughts in Australia. Like, there'll be a string of events that occur. But yeah, food production is, is it's on a knife edge. We've just got to be very careful with what, you know, waving our hands and saying this is the magic bullet. It, it's not. Everything's way more complicated than that. I, just, I wish there was an answer, but yeah, I don't have a good one. It's not Disneyland. Well, that's a little depressing. But <laughs> anyway, I mean, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, we, we I've heard the argument made that we make plenty of food. It's, it's a distribution problem and we just can't get the food to where it needs to go. And we spoil and we, you know, we, and we, you know, we, I mean, to be fair, we, we throw away 40% of our food in the U S I mean, it goes into the landfill. So I don't know if there's, if, if there's room in that, to make an impact through there. I mean, if we, if we could recover half of that, you know, 20% more food in the U S is a lot of food. And so, I mean, I mean, surely there are some, some places where we can do this. I know there's a thing of this ugly fruit campaign where you, you know, I mean, there's, everybody's used to this pristine, beautiful looking produce. And, you know, if it doesn't make the A grade, 
I mean, there's still nutritional value in something just because it's not perfectly round. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, is there, are there some, how much, how much impact could stuff like that have? Yeah, we'll get some chickens and some pigs. I mean, that, that's what they do in the field. We have a chicken and a pig in the backyard and feed them the scraps. That's what we do. So our food waste here is way less than anyone else because we simply get that waste and feed it to something that converts it into something we can eat. So we get eggs. So, you know, you, the, the, in the third world countries, they get around that problem by having some or a pig. Now, there's heaps of pigs in China, domestic pigs in China, and that's, that's what their food waste goes to. That they feed, their, they feed their, their pet pig, and then they kill the pig and eat that. So you can get your food waste down by using um, an animal to convert, it, convert that waste into protein that we can eat. And that's what happens with the fruit. I mean, they pulp the fruit. The fruit that doesn't make the grade for putting on the shelf for people to buy, that'll get pulped and turned into juice, and the pulp from that factory gets fed to livestock. The, the systems are very efficient. Outside of the outside of people at home that waste a lot because they put it in the bin, the rest of the agriculture, we don't make much money. My place here is probably worth five million bucks. Um, last year, $200,000 was the income and 50,000 in expenses. So 150,000 from a $5 million investment. If you wanted to buy this place now and you turned up with five million, I wouldn't sell it to you. I, I would want more money than that. But if realistically looking around here, you could probably buy this place with the livestock on it and the, and the infrastructure for $5 million. The returns on farming is very tight. We can't afford to waste. We can't afford to be throwing away 40% of our product. It's just not what happens. We're on the ground. Farming is efficient. The waste occurs when it gets to the, to the supermarkets and people say, no, we don't want to eat that fruit because it's a bit, it's not quite the right shape or it's not quite the right color, but that still gets used for something else. It gets turned into, it gets pulped, it gets turned into livestock feed. The whole system is set up for efficiency because we can't, you can't afford to lose 2% of your income. Um, you just go broke. So yeah, farming is efficient. And um, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, Rob. And I think like, you know, I'm trying to process some of this in my mind in terms of just like, you know, if we don't have a distinct answer, like where's the most logical spot to try to find the next, the next spot to find an answer or get closer to it. And it seems like it almost maybe would require a step back to a cultural step back, maybe towards uh, a time when, when we were a little more efficient at the local level. So like, less about I'm not saying everyone needs to have a backyard farm and provide all their food and all their their stuff right in their own backyard but maybe it is something as simple as having a lot more people with pigs in their backyard and a lot more people with their own chicken and eggs and then let the efficiency of the current farming system do its thing but also get save some of that 40 percent waste at the local level well, food's too cheap is the basic problem. Like we, we can just throw it away and it doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, in, if, in a third world country, if you've got $2 a day to live on, suddenly your food, you're very keen to not waste any. But because food's so cheap, we can just throw away 40%. doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, it's, but you want food to be cheap so that the poor people can eat. So it, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, get, one people say, what should we do to be most ethical? I say, have a veggie patch at home and run some chickens and get in large herbivores when your veggie patch doesn't grow in the seasons when you don't get any food from it, you know, eat, eat a large herbivore. And that's, that's the most ethical, even though strictly speaking, you're probably better off just eating the herbivore um, because as soon as someone has a veggie patch at home, they pump, they turn their water on. So there's pumps, there's fossil fuel involved in that. There's, there's deaths that occur because you've got your veggie patch at home, but at least people are going to start thinking about their food waste. They'll know how much effort went into growing that food. People have got no idea how much effort goes into growing food. Um, 
the trouble with small scale farms is that they can't afford to have the heavy lifting gear. Like I've got two tractors here with front end loaders on them. Like if I need to go and pick up something heavy, I go and get a, a 200 horsepower tractor and lift it up. Like there's no, I can do a lot of work with very, with just myself. Whereas if you've got a small scale farm, you can't afford that heavy lifting equipment. You can't afford the tillage equipment. You, you run into the, you've, you've got to have these efficiency things. I've, I, I've got 10 dogs here. Um, four in my main team and then I've got some pups coming through on the retired dogs you don't want a lot of small farms having that many dogs they're, I mean the dogs eat food they're not that that's not terribly efficient either I've got 1500 acres so the dogs are justified for that area but if you start bringing it back and saying we've only got 100 acres you just wouldn't want to have that number of dogs that, that, that doesn't pay to feed that many animals for 100 acres so the efficiency of my place is I can run the place on my own with a team of dogs but as soon as you go start making the place smaller, and I've got all the tractors and all the he all the heavy equipment, um, as soon as you start making the, the place smaller, you run into the efficiency issue where you can't afford to have that gear, you can't afford to have the dogs, you can't afford to have the heavy equipment. So, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Um, yeah, you'd almost need like a, a community co-op tractor or something. <laughs> to get, and even that, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of problems with that setup as well. But And not to mention just the infrastructure change that you'd have to go through to get to that point to begin with. Yeah, that's right. And, and community-operated gear never never works properly. I mean, it just doesn't get looked after. There's always, you know, the the um, I, I did a lot of work in remote Central Australia, and the Aborigines have a culture where they share everything. Mm. Um, so if you buy a new car and your family, it's like it's it's a nice way to be. Um, if you've got some food on your plate and someone wants it, you, you the culture is to share it. Um, but what happens is you, they'll buy a new four-wheel drive, the community, and that car will do laps around the community until it breaks down and it's pushed off the side of the road. So it'll spend six months driving nonstop, even at mm -hmm. night, because they, they just share the car. You know, someone will get out and someone will get in and take for a drive. And, then, and, that, and so after a while, that just gets, to, just gets destroyed. So, you, you know, it, that, that's communism pretty much. You know, Sounds like a powder keg. <laughs> no one can own anything good because it gets destroyed. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's just, it's just not the way people are sharing stuff. We're just not good at it. You have to actually own it. Yeah, I wish it was different. This is that Disneyland thing. I wish, I wish it was different. I wish we could share everything and everything would stay new and pristine and looked after. But the fact is that's not the way it is. It's not the reality. Let me go back to the, you know, the, because you talked about, you know, people trying to do the regenerative agriculture, I think scientifically calling it adaptive multi-paddock grazing. I mean, that's what the literature sort of, sort of demonstrates. And there are people that are having success with that. You know, like guys, like guys like Salatin, and I've heard other people, Bobby Gill, who's who worked for the Savory Institute on recently, and, and you know, they're showing, you know, at least uh, in in where it, where it has been successful, and and certainly there are places where it has been successful, assuming the, the preconditions, you know, of the right type of cows, you know, you've got maybe your your wildlife is under control, its own, you've got the right climate, that they they they're able to they're they're able to increase their yield, and so do we have any room? If say, if say, you know, 20% of it, because right now, I mean, I would say it's, it's not even 1% of the world is protect, uh, is practicing a regenerative style of agriculture. But if you, you could say 20% of farmers are in a position where they could do that and we, and we adopted that, would that have an, a sizable impact on food production, efficiency, soil, soil restoration? Is there any, any reason to pursue that? In your mind. Yeah, absolutely there is. Yeah, um, I could double the production on my place um, if I went with that rotational grazing. If I put up some big fences to stop the reason for what's coming on, um, yeah, I could, I could double the production. But the, the downside is I would need more people. I'd have to move the... Like, at the moment, my, my lifestyle is really good. The reason I don't do it is I like being 
I don't have to be here all the time. You know, I can check my livestock. Um, I have to be here to feed my dogs and take them for a run, but I like doing that stuff. But I can go away on holidays and people can feed my dogs for me. There's no, there's no pressure to be here every single day and move. Like if I wanted to go down that track, I'd have to have, I'd have to have an employee, and then, and then that well, the cost of that employee would would make less money than I would get returned from the, having that employee. So, the, the having the employees on seven days a week will cost me more in production more money than the production increase I would make. So the cost of food has to go up to pay for extra people to be here to do that rotational grazing situation. Now I could effectively double my production, so sure. And I don't know if the soil would be much better. Once you start going down this um, regenerative grazing though, you end up with people wanting feedlots. I've got a really good friend who runs this regenerative um, farming practice on fifth fifth on 1100 acres and it works spectacularly drive past their place they've got more livestock on than anyone else and their paddocks look way better than anyone else they've always got more feed they've always got more ground cover they've always got more life underneath living in that they also have a feedlot because what happens after a while is you you've, you're running these animals and you go I don't want to run the animals on those paddocks anymore because they're getting a bit stressed. There's dry conditions. It's going to damage the soil. I want to lock these animals up in a feedlot for a few months and put them on grain, which is waste waste grain um, or, or waste vegetable matter or hay, whatever they've got available. Lock these animals up for a few months and then bring them back into the rotational grazing system so I don't damage the uh, underlying structure or underlying soil. Because if you've got fragile soil, you need to protect it. So if, you, if you, you're grazing the plants down too hard, you got to pull the livestock off and lock them away. So after a while, you end up with sacrificial paddocks or feedlots that you're putting these animals into. Um, yeah, and that's, I mean, their, their place looks spectacular. Their, their livestock are just right in the head and they're using these feedlots. And people would say, oh, you, now you're not, you've got, got these animals in feedlots. The, the feedlots are quite open and they're, they're protected from wind and sun. The animals don't seem to care. They've got food and water on tap. They don't care that they're locked up for in smaller paddocks. They just... It doesn't seem to bother them in the slightest. Their, their weight gains don't change, and then they get put back out onto the pasture afterwards. But people jump up and down and scream factory farming when they see this operation. We're now environment. Yeah, I mean, I've been on some feedlots, and I mean, you know, the cows have they have all the room they need. I mean, you know, the, the I think the issue some people say is well, because they're in the same location. Yeah, I mean, because even if you, I mean, if we look at wild animals, you know, in a, in a herd they cluster together. I mean, they're they are herd animals they like being next to each other that's their that's their defense from predators i mean they circle around and and, and so they do that regardless if they've got a lot of room or not they, if there's a big bunch of them most of them stand next to each other the problem becomes in if they're if they're sitting sitting there and it's mud and feces and they don't move and they're there for two or three months and then you have the issues with contamination and potential infection and more antibiotic usage and i think that's probably the, the biggest issue with the loss but i don't think it's animal you know animal crowding is not the issue i mean you know i mean you mean literally people out there that, that think you know an animal that's fed grain that spends its whole life in a box is fed corn you know from birth till death i mean this is i mean there's so much ignorance out there about what what actually happens and so it's it's kind of crazy that that we you know we just to get to square one on what's what's reality versus what's you know fantasy yeah, the feed the feedlots. You, you don't want to give any animals antibiotics because you've got a withholding period. So if you inject an animal with an antibiotic, you've got to hang on to them for another ninety days. In some cases, one hundred and twenty days. So antibiotic use in first world countries, 
just it's not it's a non-starter because as soon as you put antibiotics into an animal you can't sell it so animals on average will be in a feedlot for 94 days if you're getting animals in and they get sick and you inject them with antibiotics you've done your profiting there's not that much profit in feedlot anyway you, you're talking about maybe five percent but if you if you're if five percent of your animals are getting sick and you had to have that on you've done your profiting there's just no money in it so animals are not fed antibiotics in first world countries to any large extent um, it's just not profitable to do it. You have to get a vet in and then you have to hang on to these animals for way longer than you want to. So animals in dirty feedlots, it's, it's rare to see. It just doesn't, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. It does. There is animal abuse and we need to, everyone needs to clamp down. If you see animals in feedlots in, in the, up knee deep in their waist, it just needs to be shut down. There's no ifs or buts about that. We need to do it right and we need to look after the animals. They need to be in a clean environment. But there's economic pressure to do that because as soon as the animal gets sick, need antibiotics, you can't sell them. You can't sell them for the 90 days, 120 days. So antibiotics isn't a big use. The thing I don't like about feedlots is they inject them with HGPs, which is hormone growth promoters. I don't know how much of it goes through the through the food supply and how much ends up on your plate, but that's why they grow so fast. They get they get high protein feed, um, and then they get injected with HGPs, the hormone growth promoters. So that's that's the real difference between grass fed and grain fed, and that's why they can finish them earlier. You, you inject them with these HGPs; it's like rocket fuel. They put on weight way quicker, and they convert the protein faster into animal product that we can eat. But the downside is they've they've been injected with a growth promoter, so that's why you get that explosive growth at the end for the last 94 days i mean you almost put on a third more weight in 94 days than they did for their for their um their 13 months or 14 months out in the pasture yeah i mean that's an interesting topic and there's some people that they'll little little point to you know how much actually ends up in beef and it tends not to be really that much as you know i mean the animals make make hormones regardless so you're gonna there's gonna be some of that and so i i don't know i mean I, the, this, the the research i've seen shows that you know the what actually ends up in the beef that, that humans consume tends not to be much but i mean there's there's all kinds of things out there. there's concerns about atrazine and these things may be unique to the united states and you know different chemicals and obviously there's you know there's a big concern about glyphosate and you know all this stuff that's sprayed on weeds and how much of that ends up in you know gets bioconcentrated in in the animal fats and so i mean again how much how much you know, ends up in the animal, how significant it is, I think is unclear at best. I mean, I think that's the safest thing I could say is it's unclear. Uh, is it enough to make you not eat it at all versus eating something else? You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced it is uh, based on what I've seen with people that have been doing this for a long time. But at the same point, I do think we have to continue to look at ways to improve the system. You know, again, you, you, like you said, we can't escape from where we are. We can't, we can't escape from the fact that we've got 7 billion people on the planet and whether we get to 10 billion or 9 billion or 11 billion, whatever it's projected to be, I think it's still um, a little bit up in the air. I mean, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't, you know, maybe we'll have a, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll have a, we'll either have some climate change desert, you know, cold snap, hot snap, you know, we run out of food. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that could prevent us from getting there, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we had, a, I think who we have on there, Frank Mitloner. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's, a, he's got a UC Davis, and we, we talked about that. And he's concerned about, you know, population growth is not so much in the West because we're kind of we're really not growing much here. I mean, we're, if anything, we we're, we're, don't have enough people, you know, and we, 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 set, we have all this third world country growth where they, as they get wealthier, they want, there's more pressure 
to have things, to have electricity, to have electronics, to have nice cars, to have nice homes, to have better food quality, which often means animal food, which is clearly better food. So I don't know where, you know, where the solution is going to be. But I don't think it's malnourishing everybody and, you know, having everybody eat nothing but grains doesn't make sense either. Yeah, well, the vegan agenda is just terrific because they're taking food away from those third world countries. You just, you just eat local. Like, grow your own fruit and vegetable, have some chickens and eat local. But, yeah, the HDPs and there's a lot more chemical in your grain that you're going to eat. Um, we're not, if you go cropping and you put a lot of spray on it, you're not supposed to feed that to um, livestock afterwards. So there is a, there's, there's some restrictions in place that, that prevent too much contamination getting through the livestock. But yeah, so the, the amount of glyphosate and stuff you get in that Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger is way higher than you're going to get from eating a steak. Um, people should be relaxed about eating grain-fed. Grain-fed, if, you, if that's what you can afford and you want to eat grain-fed beef, just go to the supermarket and buy it. Um, that's, if that's what you can afford to eat, just be relaxed about it. They're eating the waste product that we're not eating, that we can't eat. They're converting that into usable protein. And the HGP thing, I don't know enough. That's beyond, that's beyond my pay scale. So you, you need, someone, a specialist needs to come in and talk about how much of that gets through the meat. I just don't know. I just, I just tell people about what happens in how we produce the food and then they can make their informed choice from there. You, you get very few HGPs in grazed, livestock on grass because there's not enough protein there for them to convert it efficiently across um so they we generally don't inject them with hgps for uh, grass-fed livestock whereas grain-fed almost for sure they've been injected with the hgps yeah i mean I, i've seen data on that and i think i think it, it's a group out of canada looked at this and i think they said for you to get the amount of uh, looking specifically at estrogens uh is what they give to to some of the cows uh you'd have to eat like 27 cows a day to get the equivalent amount that you would make endogenously. So you, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a small quantity. And so I think it's some people making a mountain out of a molehill type of situation. Still, I mean, if we can improve that, I mean, I don't think we shouldn't. I mean, I think there's, there's ways to improve that, but again, there's a, there's a cost benefit to everything. And, and if it, if it comes at, you know, we can feed nine people versus 10 people, you know, where do you draw the line there? And it, and it becomes, uh, it, it's, it's like I said, this is such a uh, complicated, complex system that, you know, there's no black and white answer on any of this stuff. And it's just, you know, the further you look at it, the more almost frustrating it becomes. But I mean, you know, like I said, it's, it's clear to me that, uh, again, switching over to soybeans and pea protein and lab-grown meat is just not the, not the solution. I, I, you know, I think it's, I think we should be running in horror from the fact that that is being sort of, you know, seen as almost inevitable. I, 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 I just, I don't know if I can strongly enough state that I, I think we shouldn't go there. And I think we should do everything in our power to preserve, um, you know, basically what I call real food, you know, and I, I don't know, you know, where else we can go with this. Hopefully more people will understand this and learn and get a vocal about it. Yeah, well, people just need to understand how. Well, if you don't understand how the food production system works, don't wade into that space. The vegans are doing it from the city. It's this city-generated idea that we can get away with plant-based food production that we're not going to kill animals. That's wrong to start with. And then the knock-on effect is if you remove the animals from the system, then heaps of people are going to starve to death. They just need to pull their heads in and and understand. I don't know any commercial food producer producer who's a vegan. I, I just don't know any of them. And I. I 
there, there may be one or two on the planet. If you hunt it around, you might find find one. But the fact is that people growing the food know how many animals they're killing. They're not they're not hypocrites. They go, well, you know, I'm killing this many animals. When I put a crop in, I'm going to eat eat a steak tonight. I know I know which one's doing the best. Um, as far as and then it's just it's just not it doesn't even come into the equation how many animals are being killed. Like it's not it's not an ethical. Yeah, it's just it, because it is what it is. We're killing thousands of animals every day for food production. Hey, Rob, let, let's, I mean, hypothetically, because I know you've kind of run these numbers before. But let's say, you know, my meal is, assuming I do this, say I'm going to have a grass-fed steak for dinner. And Zach over there is going to have a, you know, a bean sprout, you know, vegan uh, entree with, with lettuce and cucumber and, you know, uh, maybe, a, maybe a little chocolate vegan cake. I mean, who, what's the animal cost on, on those two? I mean, can you can you compare those? I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, obviously you'd have to look at field numbers and stuff like that, but what are we getting there? Well, there's, there's, t- there's two studies that have been done around that, and and the one that the one that was done in Australia on just field mice alone, Zach's going to kill 25 more sentient animals for every million calories that he eats. Now, that's just field mice. It's it's, it's probably double that. He's probably killing 50 sentient animals for every um, every million calories that he eats compared to your see a cow is over a million calories so you're doing probably two-thirds of a death per million calories with your grass-fed beef whereas zach's going to be killing um, 50 or more and and there's even the cropping country north of me where it gets into limestone they have these white snails now there's billions of these white snails per hectare or millions of white snails per hectare they're not sentient, but if you included them in the calculations and the cropping numbers just get out of control really fast, plus the runoff from the chemicals and the um, phosphate that runs into the water systems and kills the... I mean, there's 400 dead zones on the planet that are caused because cropping and cities are running. The runoff from that causes nutrients to explode in the in the waterways and then that takes the oxygen out of the water and all the fish die and that runs into the ocean. So you get a big fish kill in the in the ocean. If you added up all those sentient animals, it'd be trillions and Zach's, Zach's dish would be well over 200 more sentient deaths than your one grass-fed animal. It's not, it's not close. Eating a grass-fed cow, a local grass-fed cow is by far and it's it's not close there's no there's no argument here it's not close who's the most ethical and that's you yeah with your with your cow plus if, if that's me i'm gonna still be hungry after that i'm gonna go eat a pound of beef anyway so <laughs> oh that's right and and then what are you gonna do with the waste you might as well feed it to your chickens and eat <laughs> yeah I, the vegan, the vegan agenda—they've got it wrong. Like I'm not a nutritionist, so uh, but but looking at what's going on, it looks like they've got the nutrition wrong. That's your guys, that's Sean's expertise and Bart K and the rest, and they've definitely got it wrong on the ethics. So we can nail it down to say they've just got it wrong on ethics and on the environment. Cropping is worse every single time. You look up methane um, for the environment, cropping's worse. You look up chemical runoff cropping's worse you look up damage to the environment cropping's worse they haven't got it right on all three of the pillars of veganism is just false 100 percent false and then you put in the fact that we can't feed the population if we wanted to go all plant-based anyway they just it just needs to be stopped like it's crazy it's completely insane everything they say is wrong don't tell they don't believe that <laughs> I <laughs> think they're right in there. They're, they have a holy uh, divine right to, 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 to tell us what to do and what to eat. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, and they're very vocal and they're, they're, they're very aggressive and they're on top of it 24 seven. And uh, hopefully, 
like I said, hopefully enough people will be inspired and motivated to care and uh, not let this uh, sort of uh, uh, disaster unfold, which I see it, I see it, I see it unfolding, you know, as they're, as they're very, uh, very wisely going after the children, which I think is, you know, very scary. And they're in there. And, and yeah, I don't know if they've got it right. I mean, they, they, they're very good at marketing. And the, and the city kids, I mean, my, my um, nephews are growing up in the city um, and they come with the, the strangest ideas about um, the way farming should work. I mean, they know because they work here now, they've got old enough, they're 15 and 14 and 15, they come and do some work for me now. So they've seen the reality on the ground and they go back and just shake their head at what's being said in the classrooms. Yeah, they're, they're certainly being indoctrin- indoctrinated um, with just crazy, just a crazy idea. And, yeah, I, we need more education from people that actually grow the food going into the into the classrooms and saying this is the reality on the ground. There's no, I just, it's it's really frustrating. I don't know what the answer is. You guys are doing a fantastic job, and Sean, you're you're one of the tip of the spears. There's Bobby from Bobby's perspective. Um, you know, there's there's a, a number of YouTubers and 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 even the ex vegans that are coming out and saying you know we had it wrong. Now we've seen the light. Um, and the diet doesn't work. We, we were breaking down on the vegan diet and they're coming out and, and, and explaining that to everyone. It just needs to be a huge pushback. And I think we're starting to see it. I'm, I'm not, it'd be interesting to see the numbers, what's happening. Yeah, I'm glad to see, you know, people like yourself, because I mean, I mean, you've got a hard job to do. I mean, you're working, you know, I mean, this, the, the animals don't, you don't get a big, you know, like I said, I mean, for the most part, most farmers and ranchers, are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It doesn't matter if it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's what nice out, you know, horrible out there, out there working, they have to take care of these animals and you don't have time to advocate for your craft. I mean, you, you, you know, you have to, you know, you just can't do it. And, and much of the ranching population is older. You know, we've got these, the average farmer rancher, whatever's average age in the United States is 63 years of age. And so you've got, they're not, they don't even have the technological chops to get out here and do what needs to be done. And so it's, it's uh, nice to see somebody like yourself and hopefully more will step up to the plate, uh, you know, and do what needs to be done because I think this is a message that, that really has to get out there. And, you know, like I said, I'm doing my part that I can and Zach is, and, you know, we just have to keep, uh, keep doing this and hopefully we'll get enough attention to uh, like wake some people up. The farming thing, the older farming is actually a serious issue. It takes years to become, like I've been doing this for 16 years now, um, or running into 16 years, and it, the learning curve for farming is really big. That, that um, the skill set and the knowledge that is being lost and not being passed on is, is going to be a terrible, a terrible loss. Around me, I think the average age is 75. Um, so I'm one of the young ones and I'm pushing 47. I know I'm 47. So, um, I, when I started, it, I, I, was, I was talking to an old farmer and he's been, he said, I said to him, I said, I've been doing this for 15 years. I still don't think, I still don't feel like I know anything. And he said, I've been doing it for 60 and I feel the same way. It, because every season is different. So I've seen 16 seasons now, but the next one comes around is going to be different. Now, the longer you've been doing it, the more experience you have and the more the season's likely to line up with your past experience. Whereas one year we had where it stayed green, like normally we dry out in summer. And um, that kills all the worms and the bugs in the soil. That, uh, sorry, all the yeah, all the all the intestinal worms. So the parasites that get into into uh, the sheep that gets they get killed when it gets hot in summer and everything dries out. We stayed green, and so my sheep looked fe- spectacular because they were fat. I thought they were healthy. It was the worst lambing I ever had because the lambs were hitting the ground. They were getting infected with these internal parasites, 
and and they were dying on me. Now, my I lost twenty percent of my production from that because I just didn't know, like I hadn't experienced that before. Whereas the older farmers next to me, it was it was not an issue for them. They'd been through that before. They knew what was coming and they were prepared for it, and they treated their livestock. Um, in advance the other thing is you have to have experience to know when you look at a livestock to say that's looking sick the earlier you get it it's probably like being a surgeon the best surgeons spot a problem early whereas you know you get some bumbling idiot who's just, who's new spots the problem later and that causes much more of an issue further down the track so the really good farmers they spot the issue early and they address it early before it becomes an issue in your production whereas someone like me who's not as experienced looks at livestock i pick it up a few weeks later than they would have that there's a problem there and so yeah that experience it just takes years and years and years to get and and the fact that we're not replacing those older farmers with new people is that's a serious issue coming down the pipeline really serious and attacking ranches and attacking fruit and attacking food producers means that people from the cities are less inclined to go into that industry or they treat it with the disrespect and I mean, if you haven't got food on your in, on the table, it, it's going to be serious problems. You have shelter and food and clean water. They're the three things you need. Oh, and heat, so you want to stay warm. Or, yeah. I mean, that's it. That, that's the base. And, when, and it's not, not enough respect around farming. Well, I agree, and hopefully we can change that. Anyway, Rob, um, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I, I, I do, I've got to go get my kiddos out of camp. They're in a little camp today, so I've got to run out of here. So... Thank you for coming on. Um, can you tell us, tell people where they can find, because I know you've got some YouTube videos up that I think are very instructive and helpful. I hopefully people watch them. You got any information you can let people know where they can follow you or find you. I know you've got a name on you, something like Zap Pup, something. I saw you comment on my, and I, I was like, what, who is that guy? Then I recognized it was you, but I didn't, it was like, the problem with, with social media is people have names, and you don't know who the heck is who. So it's kind of like you've got this alias. But how do people get? How do people find out more about what your what your stuff is? Yeah, the first um, Bobby's perspective is the main one. We're going to do a um, we're going to do a documentary on food production. So he's coming over to Australia. So the the main first protocol go to see Bobby's perspective. I have a, a small YouTube channel called Zap Puppies. Uh, it's because I've got an old retired working dog called Zap. She had some puppies before she retired. So, yeah, that's where one of them comes from. So, yeah, Zap Puppy is my um, YouTube channel name. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. Awesome talking to you guys. And uh, thanks very much for the work you're doing. Thanks for yeah, Rob, thanks for, Yeah, thanks a bunch for taking some time to come on and, and chat with us. So I'm looking forward to getting this one up. I think our listeners are going to really like to hear kind of what you had to say and do another deep dive behind uh, animal agriculture. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Zach. Much appreciated. All right. Well, I'm going to. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.